Hey, good morning, church. Merry Christmas to you. A blessed Christmas to you. Especially if you might be up on the hill and you're visiting family. Uh, we're really glad to have you with us and that you would make time uh, to spend a little time with us here at the Bible Church this, this morning. We're going to enjoy God's Word and worship Him through the study of His Word, which is uh, what we do every week. And uh, so I'm going to invite you to take your Bible if you brought it with you today. And if you didn't, raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. And let's head for the book of Genesis this morning. You thought we might be going to First Peter, but we're not doing that today. We're taking a break from that study series and I'd invite you to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. If you need a Bible today, raise your hand. We'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. There's also a note page in your bulletin. I think that that will prove very helpful, so please retrieve that if you wouldn't mind. And if I could just ask you to silence those cell phones, that would be also a, um, a favor. I would appreciate that. We won't have an interruption possibly in that way. Tradition. We're all familiar with that word, tradition. Good old Webster defines tradition this way. The passing down of the elements of a culture from generation to generation. Tradition. A mode of thought or practice followed by a people or a person consistently over time. Tradition. Any time-honored practice. Church family, we have entered that season of the year when within our culture and also within our families, tradition comes into play perhaps more than it does at any other time of year. Even now, I suspect that I could call on any one of you and you would be able to instantly tell of a tradition that was or is a part of your Christmas celebrations, the way that you celebrate Christmas, maybe a tradition that you created uh, when you started your family. Some of you are defining your Christmas traditions right now, preserving and handing off to your children maybe traditions that you grew up with and that you do not want to lose. Some of your traditions are totally unique to your family as far as you know. You don't know of anyone else who does exactly what your family does in the days leading up to Christmas or maybe what your family does on Christmas Eve or perhaps on Christmas morning. You have your traditions unique to you and they're just part of the fabric of how your family celebrates Christmas. That being said, though, there is one Christmas tradition that just about all of us share. No matter how old we are, no matter where we grew up, no matter what our family's uh, position was financially or socially, year after year, Christmas after Christmas, virtually all of us share the tradition of the Christmas tree. In fact, very few do not have a Christmas tree as a part of their Christmas celebrations. Practically every home in the United States will have decorated trees. Why? Why, church? Because it's tradition, right? It's a very special tradition. This tradition of the Christmas tree, as the story goes, began clear back in the 16th century or 
the 1500s with Martin Luther, who was the great German church reformer. And as the story goes, on a cold Christmas Eve, Luther was taking a walk after dark, and he came upon a tall evergreen tree that was silhouetted against a a crystal clear, star-filled night sky. And inspired by the beauty of what he was looking at, he just kind of on a spontaneous whim cut down a small fir tree, took it to his home, to his family, and he placed lighted candles on the tree. And then he proceeded to tell his children that these lighted candles stood for the stars in the sky over Bethlehem Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. That's the story behind the tree. Whether that is actually true, historically can be proven, I don't know about that. But that's the story. With Luther's spontaneous little gesture, though, a tradition was born. He would have had no idea what would have started, what he started, what he created as a result of that. More than 30 million real trees are going to be cut down this season. 30 million. People are going to spend more than $1 billion on trees this Christmas so they can have their tradition. Every Christmas, the President of the United States, as you know, takes a a tall spruce tree and places it on the White House lawn and, and lights that on a specific day and time, and he decorates it with large colored balls, 50 of them, one for each of the 50 states. Why do we do that as a nation? It's tradition, isn't it? Been doing it a long time. We have our own Idlewild Christmas tree lighting tradition every year in the center of town on Thanksgiving weekend. Many of you were there. And I know that's true because I was there. The streets were blocked off. Town was jammed. People were coming up from all over. And, and the Idlewild and our, and our little community celebrated this, this tradition around this large tree in the center of town. We've been doing it for a, a long time. Some would not hesitate to say that Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without a tree. Now, I won't ask you if you agree with that statement or not. But church family, I will invite you to think about something with me. Is it possible that the traditional Christmas tree has, without our even realizing it, diverted our attention away from thinking about some other trees this Christmas? Three trees, to be specific, that are actually more significant, more important, and more a part of the Bible's true Christmas story than Luther's little Christmas tree will ever be. Can I ask you to think about with me this morning the real, think about the real Christmas trees that are a part of this this time of year. The real ones. As I said, there are three, and each in its own way is inseparably connected to the very first Christmas. Not not to a Christmas Eve in the 1500s, but to that moment in time when God left the glory of heaven, put on our humanity, our flesh, and was born in Bethlehem. Honestly, the reason that there is a virgin who conceived and 
a babe who was born in a manger and angels who sang a birth announcement over Bethlehem and shepherds who came in wonder and magi who journeyed to, to worship. All of these things that we think of when we think of Christmas, well, the reason for all of it is forever inseparably connected to three trees. And we want to think about that together. Now, my desire as we take a closer look at these trees today is not to undermine your family's Christmas tree tradition, but rather that your, your tradition and, and my tradition of, of a Christmas tree, that, that we'll even make that more deep and rich and, and full uh, because we have taken the time to explore what the Bible has to say about the real trees of Christmas. Now, the first of these three trees, as you see it there on your note page, and I'm guessing you're already knowing where we're headed here, is found in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Your Bible is open to Genesis chapter 2, yes? Yeah. Would you find verse 8 with me for a moment? Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. We'll put these verses up on the screen, but here's how it will read. I'll read it for us. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then if you jump down to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then if we skip down a little bit more and we go into chapter 3, find verse 1. Here's what we read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's a reference to Satan, by the way. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. Verse 8. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And we'll stop right there. The first of the real Christmas trees, church family, I would submit to you, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which for our purposes here this morning, we will refer to as the tree of separation. For it was here under this tree that Adam and Eve, mankind's first parents, determined to declare their independence from God. It was here under this tree that mankind first said, though made by God and made to be dependent on God, 
This is where, under this tree, mankind first said that he could make it on his own. He, could, he didn't really need God, that he could do life just fine without God. It was under this tree that that statement was first made. It was here under this tree that mankind declared independence from God. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, for it was just as God said it would be, the human race has been suffering the consequences of that fatal declaration ever since. And you know this is true. What came with Adam's own variation on the Declaration of Independence was instant, catastrophic, destructive, crippling, frightening separation from God. And this is captured in the words of verse 8, if we look at those words from chapter 3 one more time, and the man and his wife did what, church? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In one moment, the human race was plunged into sin and into spiritual separation from God. Sin invaded the life, the soul, the deepest part of who Adam and Eve were they had known only good up to that moment but now they knew personally and experientially they knew evil they now possessed a a sin infected nature a sin contaminated nature that's first and most natural inclination is to hide from God to flee from God to resist God and what has followed is millennia of the consequences of this devastating choice. War, prejudice, ignorance, famine, poverty, sorrow, unhappiness, decay, and death, physical death and spiritual death. As descendants of Adam, we were born with this sin nature as well. We were born separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says we were born spiritually dead in sin. In fact, here's how it reads on the screen as well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It all began under a tree in a garden. The day we said through our first parents, we can do this without you, God. We can do this life without you. And even to this day, even as we move into the Christmas season, people by the billions live convinced that they do not need God. At least they don't need the God of the Bible. In spite of the desperate state of our world and And in spite of the inevitability of death, in spite of the the, the restlessness of of our souls and the unspoken fears that reside as we think about what happens after this life is done, countless people try to put a cloak of of self-sufficiency and fool themselves into believing that they've got it all together. They know they don't deep down inside, but they they try to convince themselves that they've got it all together. Sin separates it separates us from God Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says God's eyes are too pure 
to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. Sin separates us from God and separates God from us. That's just the way it is. He's too pure to have fellowship with sin. And then Romans 3.23 tells us honestly, all of us have what? We've all sinned. We've all, we've all fallen short of this, this glorious, holy God and who he is. All of us have done that. And then verse 23 of chapter 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Death. Sin pays a wage, the wage that it pays, death. And by the way, when the Bible uses the word death, it doesn't just mean physical death. It means spiritual death as well, life without God in it. It means separation. Whenever you hear the word death in Scripture, just think of the word separation because sin always separates in the same way that physical death separates us from this life so that we don't get to share in this this life anymore, well, sin separates us from life with God. It separates us from spiritual life in the truest and best way. The whole reason there is a Christmas is because there's this tree, this tree called separation, and we have all eaten of its fruit. As 3.23 said, we've all sinned. We've all eaten its fruit. The fruit of this tree has killed us spiritually. We are born dead in sin. And this spiritual death has condemned us to an eternity separated from God unless something or someone comes to our rescue. Yes? Now that said, the first step then towards effectively and permanently confronting this separation from God that is a part of our life, we're born with that, is to admit to God, hey, I, I, know, I know this tree. I know this tree. I have eaten its fruit. I've bought its lies, and I've tried to live without you, Lord. I have sinned against you, rebelled against your word and your will. I am a sinner. This is how we address separation from God. We start with an admission. I was born under this tree, I've lived in the shade of this tree, and I have eaten of its fruit. The tree of separation is why there has to be a Christmas. There has to be. And that brings us then to think about a second tree. There's only one place, according to the Bible, that anyone born under the tree of separation can go and experience the removal of this separation, the healing of the breach, a closing of the, the chasm that sin has created between us and God. There's only one place we can go, and that is to go to the tree that 2,000 years ago Jesus went to for us, to that tree that stands on a hill called Calvary. The reason Jesus, God in the flesh, was virgin born in Bethlehem was so that he could die for sinners and remove sin's terrible separating effect and he did that on a cross. And this is what the second tree is all about. The cross on which Jesus died. We often refer to it as the tree, don't we? Scripture refers to it that way. Perhaps you have heard it referred to that way before. 
However, there is a good chance you've never heard of the cross referred to as the real Christmas tree. And yet I would submit to you that it is. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the separation that results from sin in our lives by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a, what church? On a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The cross of Jesus is the second tree of Christmas. And for every real Christian, it is also the tree of forgiveness. And we will call it that, the tree of forgiveness. This second tree, it doesn't have any of the beauty or, or graceful form that the tree in your home decorated right now has, but it is a most beautiful tree to anyone who knows what it stands for, what it means, who understands who it was that hung there on that tree and what he accomplished there. For anyone who knows those truths and believes them, it is a most beautiful tree. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The, what's the next word? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. The tree of forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was removing the separation produced by sin. And how did that happen? Not counting their trespasses against them by nailing them to the cross through Jesus Christ. In verses 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And why is all of this true? Well, Psalm 86, verse 5, 86, 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and you are forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Jesus died in our place on this tree. He paid our personal sin debt to God for us on this tree, removed our guilt, and satisfied the just demands of God's holiness and the promise of all to all who believe that Jesus has done this for them, the promise is forgiveness and eternal life. Which is why we sing a song from time to time here at the Bible Church called The Wonderful Cross. The Wonderful Cross. Who calls a cross wonderful? An instrument of torture and suffering and death? Wonderful? Really? The wonderful cross? I know who does that. You do that. And you do that because you believe that on that cruel tree, God died for you. He forgave you. He washed you clean of sin's death sentence and the separation that it brings. It's wonderful to you because you've been forgiven. And you've been redeemed by the blood that ran down its beam and spilled onto the ground beneath. 
It's a wonderful tree to you. You ever heard of the legend of the dogwood? The dogwood is a, is a gnarled and twisted, not very big tree that blooms in the springtime right around Easter. We have dogwoods here in Idlewild. And as the blossoms appear on the branches, each one is tinged with scarlet on the petals. And legend has it that once upon a time, the dogwood was a, was a straight, tall tree of some considerable size, nothing like its appearance today. And the legend says that it was from the dogwood tree that the cross of Jesus was made and on which he was crucified. Never again would this tree be straight and tall. It would be gnarled and crooked and twisted. And forever its blossoms would remember the terrible death that was carried out on its wood. Every Easter red would appear on the petals of the dogwood tree. A reminder of the blood of Jesus shed for sinners. Now, church family is just a legend. But it does carry, I believe, an element of truth. For something terrible and yet wonderful happened on Calvary's Hill that day when that terrible tree was erected and the Son of God hung upon it. God's own Son laid down His life for the sins of the world and for all the rebellion and all the separation and hurt and ugliness and pain and death found under the first tree. And in so doing, in dying for your sin and mine, we get to experience personally what it means to really be loved by God. This is how we know the love of God. Because we come with nothing but our sinful lives to the foot of this second tree and God loves us there. And he nails our sin to the cross in the person of his own son. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us on this tree. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die on this tree so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, not be separated anymore from God, but have life eternal with him. God didn't have to give us this, this second tree. He chose to do that willingly, lovingly. There's no other way that our sinful nature can be redeemed. There's no other way that the broken relationship between God and us, this separation can be restored. No other way that the magnitude of God's love for us can be so powerfully demonstrated than to see Jesus hanging on this tree. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we read these words. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, if you stop and just think about those words right there, brothers and sisters, this, that, that's Christmas in a sentence. That's Christmas. That's, that's the incarnation of God in human flesh in a single sentence. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What sin separates 
the blood of Jesus reconciles. Verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy, blameless, above reproach, free of accusation. So effectively does the blood of Jesus cover the guiltiness of our sin. No charge can be brought by heaven or by earth against us. That's the blood of Jesus. That's the power of the cross. Oh, how desperately people need to know about the second tree of Christmas about the cross, about the resurrection of Jesus, that he died, but death could not hold him in the grave. You know, at this time of year, we, we focus on the manger in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem, and, and that's as it should be. But let us not forget that the only reason for the manger was so that one day, Jesus, as the God-man, might die for us on a tree called forgiveness that's why there's a manger is so that there could be that and Jesus said I never want you to forget I never want you to forget the truth behind my cross I never want you to forget this tree and so church family that's why we we regularly here at the Bible church we celebrate what we call communion we come here and we partake of the elements of the bread and the cup. And we do that because Jesus said, I want you to do this. I don't want you to forget the tree of forgiveness and what it means in your life. And so the bread reminds us of the, of the body of Jesus that would, would become sin for us. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we partake of the cup to remind us of the blood of Jesus, which was poured out to wash us clean, Scripture says. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to remember the tree of forgiveness. We're going to do it through communion. So I'm going to invite the ushers who are going to serve you today if they would come forward. And as they're coming forward, let me just make mention of this. If you have yet to settle the question of who Jesus is going to be in your life, it would be better if you just let these elements pass by because in this moment, they would not mean what Jesus would want them to mean for you. You would perhaps be partaking because of others around you and you don't want to be kind of feeling left out. I would just encourage you not to do that till, till you settle the question of who Jesus is going to be in your life. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you have fallen at the foot of, of the cross in faith and you've given your life to him and you believe he's paid your sin debt, why this, this table of remembrance belongs to you. And I would encourage you to take the bread and the cup. And as it is passed uh, before you and you take, would you hold on to the elements? And then when we're all served, uh, we will share the taking of that together. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, as we're about to step into this moment, we just want to say thank you to you for the love that you poured out to us in the person of your Son. 
We thank you for Bethlehem. We thank you for Christmas truth. We thank you for a manger. The humility that is reflected there is as God put on human flesh. We thank you for that. But oh, we thank you. We thank you even more for a tree. A tree where forgiveness is found through the death of your son. Allow us to honor you as we in obedience remember your body, Lord Jesus, and your blood poured out for us. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. So be served, but hold the elements. As Jesus gathered with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, he shared a meal with his devoted followers. And in the course of the meal, he took the bread that was on the table and he blessed it. He passed it amongst his disciples and he said, this is going to be a symbol, a memorial for you, a way to remember regularly what I'm about to do as I go to the cross and die for you. He took the bread and he blessed it and he passed it amongst his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. And Lord Jesus, how we thank you for bearing in your body the wrath of a holy God, a wrath that was not due to you or should have been yours. It was our, ours to bear, for we were the guilty. But you, you stood in our place, well, you hung in our place, actually, and you bore our sin. You took it upon yourself, and as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, you became our sin so that we might have your righteousness. All we can do is say thank you for your body, which hung on the tree for us. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Jesus took the cup that was on the table, blessed it as well, passed it amongst his disciples, and said, This is going to be a reminder to you of my blood which was poured out to pay your sin debt. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sin. But it had to be holy, sinless blood that covered our sin. And Jesus was alone could satisfy that, that requirement. He goes to the cross, he hangs on the tree, and on this night he says, this is the new covenant, the new agreement between God and sinful mankind. This do in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, what power there is in your blood. There's that old hymn that says there's power in the blood, but we have no idea. One drop of your precious blood covers the sin debt of an entire world of humanity. How thankful we are that you would be willing to pour out your life for ours. What can we say? What can we say? What can we do? But say thank you to you and then seek to live for you for the rest of our days until we see you face to face. 
We thank you. We thank you for going to the cross for us. And all God's people said, amen and amen. There are baskets that are located in the aisles. If you would look down and perhaps retrieve one of those baskets to pass it across the aisle, then your cups can be disposed of in that way. Well, there are three trees that are part of Christmas, three real trees that we should remember. There is the tree of separation. There is the tree of forgiveness. But let's talk about that third one for just a few moments before we head home today. The real tree of Christmas that we would add to these two is the tree of life. We started our trees of Christmas explore in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It probably doesn't surprise you that we would end our explore in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I'll invite you to join me there if you wouldn't mind. Go all the way to the very end of your Bible and find chapter 21 of Revelation. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you might be aware that the last two chapters, 21 and 22, have much to say about what eternity holds for those who have fallen at the foot of the tree of forgiveness. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 21. As the Holy Spirit... Through the Holy, as the Holy Spirit through the, the Apostle John writes these words, we pick it up, and here's what we read. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, no more separation. That's gone forever. If you have fallen at the foot of the cross of Jesus and embraced its truth, then what is being written about here is in your future. It's in my future. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then, after going into some detail about the incredible city known as the New Jerusalem, John sees the following, and he writes about it in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you've fallen at the foot of the cross of Jesus, if you have journeyed to that second tree, then your name is in the Lamb's book of life right now. And we go on into the next chapter. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, 
through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will stop there. What an amazing scene, church. A city made by God of incredible size and beauty, and there the throne of God and and the Lord Jesus Christ, and and they're right there in the midst of the city, and, and the glory of God illuminates everything. There's no sun anymore. And presumably a broad street proceeds out from the throne. And in the middle of the street flows this river of life. And many would see in the river a reference perhaps to the Holy Spirit who flows out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. Or at the very least, it symbolizes the unending flow of eternal life that is sourced in God and made possible by Jesus and abundantly is available to the inhabitants of heaven by the Holy Spirit. So you have perhaps a picture of the Trinity. And lining this river on both sides is this tree of life. With the obvious idea being that the tree draws its life and its nourishment from the life river and then produces this remarkable life-sustaining fruit for the people of the city. A different fruit each month, perhaps alluding to just the variety that God brings into heaven with him. Even the leaves of the tree are a blessing as we get the, our English word therapeutic from the Greek word for healing in these verses. Even the leaves are therapeutic. They enrich our heavenly life, making it unspeakably full and satisfying. Now, you probably already caught this, but Revelation 22 is not the first time that we read about the tree of life. In fact, we read about it earlier, didn't we? Back in chapter 2 of Genesis, we read about the tree of life there. The tree of life was there in the center of the Garden Eden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we didn't read the whole of Genesis chapter 3, but when Adam and Eve settled under that, that first tree, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God supernaturally had to prevent them from eating from the tree of life. Because apparently to have done so would have doomed them and all of us to eternal life in a condemned and sinful state separated from God forever. And so God banished Adam and Eve. We didn't read about that. But banished them from the garden for their protection and for their ultimate redemption. Now, barred from access to the third tree. That's in our future. Through faith in Jesus. In fact, we're invited to come. To linger in its shade and to partake of its fruit. We had access to it once. But our sin took that away. And yet through Jesus Christ, it'll be ours to enjoy forever. Very soon. When we come to a passage like Revelation 22, it sometimes gets pretty hard to distinguish between what is to be taken literally and what is symbolic in nature but church family for our purposes this morning we don't really need to to try to 
to break all of that down. We need only catch hold of the truth that this third tree in some way will help us enjoy to the fullest measure our eternity with the God who made us, who loved us, who died for us, who rose from the dead for us. Somehow this tree helps us do that. I don't know if we've ever thought about it before, but really the history of the world does revolve around these three trees. Your life, my life, is forever connected to these three trees. The first tree, the tree of separation, by our sin robbed us of a relationship with God. That tree brought death. The second tree, the tree of forgiveness, made it possible for those who stop trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus alone, his sacrificial death and his risen life. We have a relationship now with God that has been restored. This tree brings salvation. And the third tree, the tree of life, well, that assures us that our relationship with God is, is not just for a year or a thousand years or even 10 billion years. It is forever and ever and ever. It is the tree of eternal life. Every person in the world and every person in this room right now is either living in the shadow of the tree of separation or is living in the light that exists at the foot of the tree of forgiveness. All of us, we're in one of those two places right now. And the only way that anyone will ever see the tree of life is if they have in humble repentance and simple faith made their way to the tree of forgiveness. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you done that? Are you living at the foot of of the cross of Jesus, the tree of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, what do we say to you in this moment? But, but thank you. Thank you for your precious word, which reveals to us the realities that, that are a part of the, the real Christmas story. We're sorry that sometimes we get lost in all of the trappings of Christmas and a beautiful evergreen tree that we decorate and put up in our home and we, we just don't think about the real trees of Christmas. Thank you. Thank you for addressing the separation that is true in our lives because of sin. Thank you for making it possible for us to be restored to you through the tree of forgiveness, through the cross of Jesus. And thank you for the promise of eternal life and the fruit that we will one day partake of that will enhance our enjoyment of heaven with you, however that works. In this moment, in this season, if you have yet to decide who Jesus will be in your life, can I just plead with you? I, I, I plead with you. Do not leave today 
without coming to the, the tree of forgiveness. Acknowledging your, your sin. Acknowledge that you, you've partaken of the, the fruit of separation, the tree of separation, and, and that sin is, has separated you from God. Acknowledge that and then come to the tree and just cry out, Jesus, save me. His promise is that you will be saved. And you will see and enjoy the tree of life. If we can help you in that decision, just let us know how we can help you. Heavenly Father, thank you. You will enrich our Christmas celebrations because of these truths. We truly are grateful. In Jesus' name, in all God's people said, amen and amen.